there is a wet stone here, there is natural gas there. What's next? They asked. No next, I answered. For a clue, I will leave this poem so you can work out the depth and the breadth of the country. talking to Brian Hammond. He's the co-author of the Reset Poetry Anthology that appeared, Picking Off New Shoots Will Not Stop the Spring. It's an amazing collection that catalogs not only the recent and ongoing revolution, but also previous periods of conflict and revolution, uh, 2007 and 1988. And there's a lot to discuss about this really remarkable work. So Brian, thanks so much for joining us here at Inside Myanmar Podcast. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure to join you. Uh, so you um, co-collaborated on this project with Coco Thet. Uh, can you share a bit about how you met him and where the idea came from to work on this? Sure. Um, so among the many things that I do, I'm a uh, co-editor of the Shanghai Literary Review, and um, I edit the uh, the interview and the book review sections. And in 2019, I reached out to Coco uh, in order to see if he would review a book that had been published by the British Council. Uh, the book uh, was about Myanmar, and it was quite an extraordinary book. It was a unique five-year project that was carried out by uh, British Council. And the title of the book is um, Hidden Worlds. Uh, hid, sorry, Hidden Words, Hidden Worlds, Contemporary Short Stories from Myanmar. Uh, and it was edited by Lucas Stewart and Alfred Birnbaum. Uh, and the book itself was first published in 2015. Uh, the English translation was 2017. And it was essentially a collection of um, collection of works uh, that took place over a four-year period. It was a nationwide program that carried out by the British Council that used literature as a platform uh, to support freedom of expression, creativity, and social change within Myanmar's ethnic nationality states. And so I thought, given Coco's background, both in poetry and obviously he's uh, from... Myanmar, he would be an ideal person to review the book, and he kindly agreed to do that. Uh, and so that was for, that was how Coco and I first met each other. Um, and then, following the uh, the um, unfortunate events in February 2021 um, and the coup in Myanmar, uh, Coco and I got back in touch with each other, and we were trying to figure out what we could do in order to support the people on the ground, um, because at the time there seemed to be this tremendous outpouring of not only um, poetry and prose, but also art as well. And a lot of international media were picking up on this. So you had stories in the New York Times and The Guardian and elsewhere, sort of cataloging or profiling uh, the tremendous cultural outpourings of the people there as they were reacting to these terrible events. Uh, and so we came up with this idea to anthologize uh, the works that were um, being written and, and disseminated largely online, uh, and one of the one of the underlying uh, ideas behind the anthology was to preserve so much of what had been written, because uh, as it was being disseminated online, the uh, the thinking was that it might actually disappear into this kind of ephemeral digital abyss. So uh, we we started to think about um, possible publishers uh, who might be interested in producing a book. 
Um, and, you know, then we started to, to contact various publishers and so on. And Ethos was one of the first Ethos books in Singapore. It was one of the first publishers that uh, we we contacted and they really took to the project from the very beginning uh, and they were very interested in it and they wanted to support it uh, and it was also important to both Coco and myself that uh, we had uh, a regional publisher as well uh, who um, who I suppose geographically as well as to a certain extent politically and culturally and socially um, had a kind of proximity to what was going on uh, and a sort of stake in uh in, in what was happening in the country at that time. And so that, that's largely the genesis of, of the project. Mm, right. So then now you have a contract to do this book. You have enormous materials that are out there in the ether in all kinds of form. Just an explosion of creativity, as you mentioned. And now you have this immense task of somehow having to collect and review and collate and ultimately select pieces that you want to represent in this anthology and, and grouping together thematically to be able to present the feeling and preserve the sediments of this time. So how did you go about that monumental task of have, having to, to, to choose what met the grade and what didn't? And what were you looking for? What kind of balance were you trying to achieve in that? Uh, it was it was a very um, I mean it was an interesting process. It was a fluid process. Uh, early on, uh, for example, there were uh, these tremendous outpourings online, and so there was a lot of material uh, from which to choose. Um, and so uh, you know there, there were various criteria. For example, there's the obvious aesthetic criteria. Um, it wasn't just reproducing or, or anthologizing or cataloging uh, or preserving. Um, you know, all of the writings that had to have a kind of aesthetic quality to it. And Coco being a poet was obviously uh, well positioned to to um, to make those kinds of aesthetic decisions um, or judgments. Um, but early on, so much of the writing um, was quite optimistic, um, which was very interesting because you had you had a, sp- a spirit of optimism. You had a spirit of of how can I put this? Of um, there was a sense that that this is something that could be um, this is something that could be combated through um, nonviolent resistance, through mass protests, through people coming together from all walks of life and, and all segments of society. And so, this spirit of optimism was very much present in so much of the writing that was emerging at the time. Um, and as the military began its its violent crackdown, which happened extremely quickly, uh, there's a certain tone tonal shift in the writing, uh, and we really wanted to capture that as well. So there was obviously an interest in the kind of aesthetic criteria. Uh, there was also an interest in preserving these kinds of shifts that were uh, reacting in many ways to the events on the ground. Um, there were also, you know, practical uh, difficulties as well in trying to trying to really get in touch with with people who are not only uh, writers. Uh, one of the things that was particularly striking was that so many of the, the, the people who contributed or who were themselves writing were not writers. Uh, they, they came really from all walks of life. So there was a problem of access too because of censorship, because of the, um, you know, the, the, the need to... Um, the need to preserve uh, a certain degree of anonymity um, just for the, the safety and the welfare of the contributors. So uh, there were there were a number of things that we had to sort of consider as we were as we were gathering these writings. Uh, there was also the issue of translation too. Uh, Coco was doing uh, most, if not all, of the the translation work for the first third of the book, and then obviously uh, the book um, incorporated poetry from uh, other aspects of, of Myanmar's history from 2020 to 2010, and then uh, reaching back from 2010 to 1988. Uh, so, I mean, there, there, there were these various moving parts involved. Mm, right. So that was another decision you made, not only to characterize the moment, but to go back during the transition period to the Saffron Revolution and to uh, 1988. Uh, what led to that decision to want to not just look at this current moment of creative expression, but to want to capture it in previous cycles as well? 
uh, it seemed to it seemed to both of us, it seemed to many people actually that that Myanmar was was regressing. That the longer this was uh, uh, longer this was happening, longer this this kind of violence and, and this kind of um, these sorts of atrocities really were happening. Uh, the more Myanmar seemed to regress back in time. And so we were drawing on, on that history uh, in order to illustrate that point, that actually uh, this, was a, this was a tremendous regression within uh, Myanmar that was, that was likely, that is likely to set the country back uh, decades, if not a generation or so. Um, and so that's why we were drawing on, on that previous history. Uh, and also there were, there were resonances between the poetry and the prose that was being written uh, in 2021 uh, and the poetry and prose that had been written that had preceded it. And so there, there were these thematic uh, connections as well. Mm, like what? Can you give an example of what kind of thematic connection you found between poetry from different eras? Well, in terms of uh, resistance, in terms of the violence, in mm-hmm. terms of the the kind of indomitable mm-hmm. human spirit, in terms of, in terms of the, the the belief that poetry could be not only an expression of these universal human values um, and fears, um, but that poetry could be and prose, I should add, could be a, a path to resistance as well, and that it could be something that that could incite, that it could be something that could resist, that it could be something that, um, that it could be, in many ways, weaponized as well. Mm, so these are some of the similarities thematically. Uh, did you identify any divergences? Did you identify any places where you saw the artist today doing something above and beyond what was seen in previous eras? I think for me, coming at it from... Uh, from largely from an outsider's perspective, um, because I hadn't really been involved with with um, writing from Myanmar uh, and, and generally culture from Myanmar. Um, I think it was quite extraordinary the extent to which the poetry reflected the the, the violence. Um, I was quite struck by by the the extreme forms of violence that were being inflicted upon uh, the people of Myanmar by the uh, the junta, uh, and some of that is borne out in the poetry that we catalog, but also and some of the stories, but in the images as well. I mean, the book opens, for example, <clears throat> uh, with a um, an image, a black and white image of uh, a bamboo wall uh, with a small bullet hole in it. Uh, and it was quite a moving tale. I remember when Coco received the poem and the image, uh, and it was in reference to, I think, a young a young child who was sitting inside their home and a stray bullet went through the wall and, and uh, the child was struck by the bullet. And so it was, you know, that, that, sort, that sort of random violence um, and that sort of, that really drove home the, 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 um, the brutality of, of, of the events on the ground and, that's, and the sorts of things that, uh, that many, so many people in Myanmar were facing. And I didn't, I didn't necessarily get that sense in, in the poetry uh, from the, the preceding years. Yeah, I think that's really fair. And I think that uh, it, it also touches upon my reaction and my feeling when I was reading it. When I went into the book, I was, uh, I, I just from my background, uh, I've, since the coup has happened, I've done, I don't know how many hours of interviews I've logged personally talking to guests of all different backgrounds and hearing so many stories and getting those stories out. Uh, and then beyond the own interviews I've done where I've listened to things firsthand, just the, 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 the daily news that I've read and just how much information and stories I've had since this happened, often in real time, often in, in some cases actually somewhat re- involved in a remote way trying to help in a real time developing crisis. And so when I got the book and I started reading, I, I was expecting to come across a number of familiar themes. And I thought I've been hearing so many of these stories before, and they've been impacting me emotionally for so long that it's, there's going to be some kind of similar resonance here and kind of thinking more that this is a book, this is, this is going to be a good book for people who might not know about the conflict or might not have the proximity that I have to hear stories probably for the first time that are going to be very impactful. But for me, there's probably going to be some kind of recycling of, uh, of 
of, of familiar themes and motifs I've heard and I've been been involved with. And one of the things that really uh, amazed me and impressed me, moved me about the book was just, on one hand, of course, it was familiar because I've been living through this every day, although remotely, but but very intimately involved with uh, the, the daily events and, uh, and, and stories. Um, so, of course, there was a familiarity, but it, it moved me and impacted me beyond anything that I was expecting just from the proximity that I already had. And it was just story after story was, was so powerful and so impactful. You know, there were, there were times at the end of a chapter, I would just have to put the book down and just hold what I had read. And I, I was, I, I was really just amazed that as, as someone like me who had been so involved for so long with this, that these stories on top of all that were still having the kind of impact they were. And as I reflected about why, um, why is this getting through when I've heard so many, when I've been in, in the middle of so many, why are, uh, are these collections now going beyond, even beyond the, 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 the year plus of my interactions with this? It, it was the feeling, as you talk about, it was this intimate feeling of trying to describe how, how it actually feels. And this is, this is an interesting thing to just spend a moment with, uh, with examining because it goes back to, I remember in the first few months of the protest, I was talking to a friend living in Yangon and the thing he kept saying that really resonated with me and kind of set me on a mission and hearing, hearing him describe it is he said, you know, I read all the reports, I read all the articles, I see the news clips, I see the posts and nothing I see actually describes how it feels. Like there, there's just this feeling that I don't know how to express. I don't know how to impart. And this individual ended up writing a series of journals over the course of several months. And he did an extraordinary job of describing this feeling and this just very mundane reality of, of how it felt. And since him saying that, because I, to be clear, I've not been, I've lived in Myanmar many years, but I have not been there since February, um, 2021. Uh, so many of my interviews are really driven by this one statement he told me that that this feeling is not getting out. And so in some of the more impactful interviews or even parts of interviews I've had, it's been when the guest is describing the, the human loss, the, the, the human sense of loss and of hopelessness and of struggle and of trying to overcome that as well, all these things together. But when it just comes in these human terms of, uh, of trying to overcome that it really moves you. And I think that, uh, that was the quality that was found in these pages that, uh, and, and that's why I, I really want to encourage all listeners, even those who think they've, as me, have been following this very closely and probably many have there, there's still something in here that rises above the, 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 the large events and the stories and the, um, the basic news and just goes to the level of humanity of what it actually feels like to be in those moments. And it's just expressed so powerfully and, and really with, dev- with with the the correct devastation of, of how it actually feels and and uh, and I think that's something for whatever reason that's something that is just not coming out to the extent that it should be so I, I wonder what your thoughts are on that um, bringing that humanity out what you've seen in how the stories from Myanmar have been coming out and how you were able to find these works and bring these works that that managed to break through that plane to some extent and really just deliver this message in real human terms. Yeah, I think I think that's really one of the reasons why Coco and I um, agreed to um, agreed to describe it in terms of witness poems and essays rather than um, poetry as resistance or protest. Um, and and obviously, when I say poetry, I also mean essays as well because the the, the book has both. Um, the, the The point was really to to offer a platform. Uh, uh, to a certain extent, unmediated, so not filtered through the media and so on. Obviously, there is a kind of filtering mechanism at work because Coco and I were both editors, and so we were selecting which works to choose. Um, but we had a tremendous number of, of works that uh, from which to choose, and, and I, I would say the vast majority of them made it into the anthology. Um, I should mention, actually, that at the very beginning, uh, Matida was instrumental in uh, in connecting both Coco and myself with um, with a lot of the writers and contributors on the ground in Myanmar uh, and she herself uh, contributed as well and um, and really the focus was as I mentioned uh, allowing the the people and their voices to emerge and to speak for themselves 
um, and to really be the sort of the eyes and the ears uh, and the mouths for what's going on, not not to have it filtered through through, for example, as I mentioned, the New York Times or the Guardian or whatever other media was reporting on it, um, and but but rather to to allow the the people there to bear witness to all of these horrific things that they were experiencing and seeing uh, on a daily basis. And as I mentioned early on, the mood was very much an optimistic one. Uh, and so the, the pieces themselves weren't really, um, weren't really sort of rife with that kind of violence. Uh, there was a sense of optimism. Pieces described people coming together nonviolently, um, gathering in the streets and peaceful protests and so on. Uh, and I think we have one piece that describes, you know, how people would bring food to each other and, and others would uh, bring water and others would then clean up and so on. And so there was this, there was this spirit of, of collaboration and, and sort of mutual solidarity and so on. Uh, but that was quickly shattered uh, as so many people began to suffer from uh, the similar fate. I mean, you had large numbers of people curiously being shot in the head. I think one of the earliest people to to um, to become a victim of this kind of violence was a, a teenage girl who was uh, at a peaceful protest and she was wearing a, a moped or a motorcycle or motorbike helmet uh, and uh, the, a bullet pierced it and she, she was shot in the head and she died. And so, you know, you have this, as I mentioned, you have this transition uh, that was very much sort of reacting to or, or, or cataloging or, you know, describing the, the escalation and violence by the Junta. Um, so, yeah, as I mentioned, it's, it's very much about, about allowing the, the people on the ground to bear witness to these kinds of traumas themselves. Mm, right. So this was a uh, some process in uh, collecting the different works and and looking at uh, which pieces to include. And of course, as you were doing this, um, things were changing in Myanmar, going from uh, nonviolent protests to the crackdown and the mood and the poetry and the stories you were collecting. Also indicated this shift as it was going on. So this was, uh, uh, looking from the perspective of the organizers, of you and Coco Thet, this was um, the from the inception of the idea to do this to the process of actually doing it and as things were changing on the ground and shifting this uh, took some time and changes, I'm sure, as this process was going on. So I'm wondering if what, as you were doing this, uh, was perhaps surprising to you? What was unexpected as you started to do the project and with any expectations or thoughts you had about how it would go and then as it started to turn out and you started to bring the pieces together and look at what you had, was there, uh, what, what, uh, uh, what manifested that might have been different or unexpected from what your thoughts were going into it? Um... I think again, I was struck by the the, the extreme levels of violence. Uh, I, I I just that that to me was um, was um, you know it was quite moving. It was quite difficult to deal with. Uh, it's quite difficult to read those pieces uh, that were coming in daily, monthly, and so on. Uh, that was you know from an editorial perspective, that was that was quite challenging emotionally uh, and psychologically as well to to read. You know about these these um, you know the traumas that so many uh, were experiencing, uh, family traumas, that, um, you know, friends being um, being jailed, being tortured, being killed, and so on. And as I said before, I have a certain distance from it. I can imagine it must have been unspeakably difficult for someone like Coco, who had uh, friends, poets, Keza Win, uh, Kati, and so on, right, who were. Right who were murdered uh, and who are no longer with us, sadly. And, um, and so that, yeah, I don't, I don't know if I had any particular expectations going into the book, but that was, again, one of the things that, that particularly struck me, the, the kind of barbarism involved um, with, uh, with, in terms of the military's reaction to, to, um, to what had started out as um, largely, if not entirely peaceful, nonviolent protests. Right. And you mentioned these poets' names that were killed during since the coup developed. There have been many poets that have been killed or arrested, tortured. The regime has certainly gone after people of, of high profile, of artists of different stripes and of, of poets particularly. Why do you think it is that 
this military regime sees poetry and poets as such a special threat that needs to be stamped out? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, I mean, we all know about the, the power of the written word. We all know how it can mobilize uh, people for good or ill. Uh, so I was listening to a, a talk that Coco uh, had participated in with one of our translators, um, Kenneth Wong, uh, and others. And they were talking about the military's um, response to this uh, in terms of the type of poetry that it is producing and disseminating. And so poetry writing obviously can, can move people. Um, it can move people to, in this case, resist what's happening, um, to protest, to catalog, to document, but it can also do uh, the opposite as well. Uh, so writing, as we know, is, is a tremendously, you know, tremendously powerful medium. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why so much of the writing that was, was being done online obviously had to be done anonymously. Um, because it presented a certain threat to the respective writers. Um, and it's also why it's obviously being censored, too. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I you know, I think, um, I think it really speaks to, to the power of the written word and the extent to which, even in our digital age, um, mm-hmm. you know, that, that, that these can mobilize, you know, these poems and these, these short prose pieces can mobilize people and the extent to which this you know this this presents a, a threat it presents a threat to 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 the military to the government that has on its side overwhelming force and yet something like uh, a line of poetry um, can threaten that force yeah yeah I, I want to ask you as well we a number of the guests we have on are are uh, we, we speak on Myanmar exclusively there and so when we're talking about some of these events as they're unfolding we're really just looking with a narrower focus just of uh, how the story has been developing in Myanmar and yet from your position you've been an editor in uh, looking at poetry in a number of different places. You have a wider context to look at, and so zooming out a bit and looking at uh, kind of looking at Myanmar as a juxtaposition or comparison to other societies, the power of poetry or the role of poetry in other conflicts or in other societies that are less than free. Uh, what um, what stands out in terms of how you've seen? the the expression in Myanmar and what what stands out is and what diverges as well as what kind of similar themes and um, in the human expression the human desire to to want to express oneself freely do you see as consistent with other uh, projects that you've done in other countries um, well uh, the obvious case um, is is um, is Ukraine and what's happening in in, in Ukraine vis-a-vis uh, the Russian invasion uh, mm-hmm. and occupation? Um, but obviously, there there are regional. Um, I don't know if comparisons, but there there are regional um, movements, resistance movements, and so on. So again, the obvious ones that come to mind are Hong Kong, um, Thailand, um, and uh, Taiwan earlier. Uh, and we see, you know, we see these kinds of we see these reactions to political violence, to, to um, you know, to dictatorial authoritarian regimes um, on the part of artists and writers and so on. We see the power of culture uh, to, to speak out, to clarify what's happening and to act in some ways as a, as a sort of a form of resistance. Uh, and this is this is something that is not only you know this is this is an age-old story. I mean, this we, we can go back to to the ancient Greeks and so on. Uh, there is this history of war poetry uh, and writing in general and cultural reactions to to war and violence um, uh, throughout throughout history. It doesn't you know it doesn't matter whether sure. it's uh, whether it's in Europe or Southeast Asia or, or whatever the case may be. Uh, so this mm. seems to this seems to be something archetypal in in mm. in terms of in terms of human beings and how they react to, to in this case, state-sponsored violence and terrorism, uh, to military occupation, and so on. And it's happening in, in Ukraine, it's happening in Myanmar, it continues to happen in Myanmar, sadly. Um, 2022, uh, this started obviously in 2021. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, you know, it's it's... I'm not entirely sure that I can really speak to that. It's 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 an extraordinarily long and broad subject. Uh, sure, sure. 
but there, there, there does seem to be something within the human spirit that, that, that finds um, an outlet uh, in poetry and in art, uh, and also something that, you know, that there's some impetus there to, to put these experiences in words or in images uh, and to use those words and images as an outlet or as a form of resistance or as, as something calling attention to what's happening. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Concerning this specific anthology that you've released, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I am curious if there were certain particular pieces that stood out and that had that really stayed with you for some time and resonated and uh, you kept coming back to. Were there were there any particular pieces in here that really spoke to you specifically? Yeah, I mean, there was there was uh, one that that I do come back to, uh, and it's rather appropriately, I suppose, given the, the time in which we are recording this podcast. It's entitled "Spring" by Nabang, and mm-hmm. um, it's quite an extraordinary poem. And I, I don't know if if, you, if I could read it now. It's not a very long poem. Uh, oh, it'd be wonderful. It, it's quite extraordinary. Um, so it's entitled "Spring." Spring seized, turned into swallows. Swallows caged turned into clamors, clamors silenced turned into scenery, scenery covered up turned into eyes, eyes forced shut turned into dreams, dreams denied turned into maps, maps destroyed turned into memories, memories deleted turned into roads, roads blockaded turned into ancillary legs, legs smashed turned into wings, wings clipped, turned into breeze, breeze detained, turned into storm, storm imprisoned, spawned a million offspring. Those offspring are our in-breath and out-breath, swallows in and out of our nostrils, our spring. I, I think that's just such a tremendously powerful poem. The language is obviously very simple. Uh, the imagery is is very down to earth. It's it's of the earth. It's it, it, it doesn't use this sort of metaphorical language, and yet it it conveys uh, so much breath and so much meaning um, in 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 these very clipped um, lines. Uh, it's just an extraordinary poem. Yeah, yeah, right. And of course, the, the thing that stands out to me just hearing it the second time here is the, the mention of the in-breath and out-breath, which is the most basic meditative instructions that, that one can follow in a monastery or meditation center, just observing the in-breath and out-breath. And so bringing that, uh, bringing a sense of mindfulness to and, and uh, cultural reference um, to this overall scene that's being painted, that's, uh, that's quite powerful. Yeah, yeah, it, it it really is. It really is, and and I often, you know, I often ask myself how how people can really have the you know the um, uh, the presence of mind really to to sit down and, and write amidst such extraordinarily difficult circumstances. To be able to reflect on that, to be able to reflect on the kinds of traumas that they that they're experiencing, um, ongoing traumas. Um, these are these are yeah. traumas that are still quite yeah. fresh, uh, and to have that presence of mind and, and, and to be able to sit down and, and to write to write that out to be able to articulate that uh, yeah. is also quite extraordinary. Yeah, yeah, for sure. What kind of reception has uh, has the book received? What kind of feedback have you heard? Uh, it's been largely well reviewed. I think um, it's it's very difficult anthology and, and i suppose in many ways it's because of that difficulty it's difficult to write about it uh, because it is a, an anthology that deals with with violence and death and, and murder and torture and uh you know all of these all of these uh, you know sort of horrific experiences but uh, but as a collection it, it it has gotten uh it has gotten um i hesitate using the word but it's gotten positive reviews Right. Yeah. Are there any other projects that you and Coco Thad have discussed doing as this conflict has stretched on? Uh, Coco has, has a number of projects, and, and, I, and I suppose I, I'll let him describe those because he, he obviously knows far more about uh, about those respective projects. Um, there, 
there is a project that I'm trying to get off the ground here in Vienna, uh, which is to have a um, an exhibition of art from Myanmar, uh, resistance or otherwise, um, mm. uh, at a local gallery here, uh, in order to try and continue to draw attention to the fact that uh, the situation in Myanmar is is still unresolved. It's ongoing, uh, and and people are still suffering. People are sadly are still dying, and so this is both. And F, this would be both an effort to draw attention to, to the situation, but also uh, to try and support uh, the people on the ground, the artists uh, and, and, and local organizations and so on uh, that are continuing to, to be advocates for um, um, democracy and so on, human rights and, and, and so on. Mm, that, that sounds great. I, I hope that that does get off the ground. And I think uh, finding a way to bring to to amplify the voices of those that are resisting and to bring out their creative spirit. I think that that is a message that uh, that's a way for many people who might not know so much about Myanmar as a country or culture or part of the world or geography. It's a way for them to enter into something universal and something that uh, that can touch us all no matter what where we live, what culture we're in, even what, what, what time we're in, it, 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 it brings us, it binds us together even centuries apart. So it's a very powerful thing. Yeah. I mean, you, you, we, we touched uh, briefly on, on Ukraine and obviously uh, the, the situation in Ukraine has really mobilized people throughout the world. And one of the things that I suppose uh, I was a bit, um, I don't know, I was a bit hmm, like, um, perhaps disappointed by was the fact that that what was happening in Myanmar didn't seem to register internationally right. um, yeah. the way that the way that it has in Ukraine and and you know I don't mean to single out Myanmar obviously there there are wars ongoing wars throughout the rest of the world uh, I think on on most of the continents of the world uh, a war of one kind or another um, and you know one of the hopes uh, with this project, with subsequent projects like the the gallery show that I mentioned, would be really to highlight that that this is still something that's ongoing, and that uh, that you know these are these are universal condition, uh, universal um, um, yeah reactions to to this kind of violence that that you know. Uh, that we have this idea of kind of imagined communities based on based on various criteria, um, but that, you know, we are all part of this kind of human community, I suppose, um, and that suffering in, in places like Myanmar and elsewhere uh, is no less no less worthy of our attention than uh, the sufferings of people elsewhere, uh, and really to, to, to kind of keep the spotlight on Myanmar, because the situation, as I mentioned, sadly, is still an ongoing one. And it, it seems to be an intractable situation, too. I mean, it doesn't seem like there is an end in sight, sadly, because it, it seems to be the case that both sides are very much uh, entrenched now uh, and a kind of back and forth. Mm, and I think that your work does a brilliant job at doing that, of breaking through those headlines, breaking through those intermediaries, as you mentioned, was actually a, uh, a conscious intention on your part and bringing those voices. And I know for me, I'm in the U.S. now, and when I meet people outside casually and the conversation comes up that, I, uh, that I'm connected to Myanmar, people that, I, uh, I, that, that don't know me previously, um, I, I'm, I'm amazed that even among people who I would, uh, just from talking to them for a few minutes, give the appearance of being somewhat well-informed, progressive, concerned about world issues, a consistent thing I've heard is, oh, is that conflict still going on? Like, yeah, you know, I, I remember hearing about it when it happened last year and I just haven't heard that much. And when I mentioned I have a podcast, they, uh, I'll get a response of like, oh, that's, you know, that's great. I really want to learn more about it. I just didn't know where to go to look. And so I think it's, it, it has somewhat fallen off of the, the, the news cycle and the consciousness and that uh, when, when information does come, it has to come in the form of some kind of political breakthrough or the opposite of a political breakthrough, something, some collapse or some atrocity that happened or some kind of dense story out of the UN or involving political intrigue that uh, that is more high level. But I think this breaks through some of those big stories by giving us an on-the-ground view, which is exactly what's needed. And I, I hope that that works like this 
can reach beyond those that are simply connected to Myanmar and care about Myanmar, but those that honor this this cry from the human heart and those that are are joining in this shared humanity and are are just able to understand what uh, beyond history taking place and these big headlines the the feeling of loss just this tremendous feeling of injustice and and loss for no reason of losing someone in your life or losing some freedom or losing some some possibility or hope for oneself or one's community or the greater country and how that that comes alive is just it is so tragic and so devastating and so real and this is an ongoing story that is continuing to unfold and i think that as uh, as, as you mentioned, as stories like Ukraine and, and other places are are taking more of the world's attention, and this is even before Ukraine, this wasn't really rising past the point of consciousness for many people to stay on. That the most we can do are, are works like this that are able to speak to that, or art shows, or podcast conversations, or uh, you know, hip hop songs, or w- whatever else is able to. To give that expression that uh, that this is still ongoing and this is this is a, a part of the shared humanity that um, that wherever we are and whoever we are that we can understand these uh, the, these kind of universal archetypes that these stories come through with. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I mean, I, I, the, the media is essentially a double-edged sword. Obviously, on the one hand, it can draw attention to to these conflicts, to these situations, uh, and really magnify them. Um, and uh, and serve as a catalyst for people uh, to try and you know try and contribute in one way or another uh, to some sort of amelioration or, or resolution to these conflicts. Um, but on the other hand, uh, you have you have uh, a media that's driven by by headlines, by things like parachute journalism, by sensationalism. And as you mentioned, if it's not something that would be attention grabbing or headline grabbing, then it often tends to tends to not um, not make it into the news cycle. Uh, and sadly, these things are cycles. It is cyclical, um, but the conflict isn't. The conflict is very much uh, an ongoing thing, uh, and so many people are largely unaware of these, these uh, conflicts throughout the world, not only in Myanmar, but throughout the world, uh, internationally, globally, um, because uh, the media functions in such a way that it doesn't really sustain its coverage of these, these events, uh, but rather chooses to focus on, um, in the case of Myanmar, the beginning of it, which was, which was obviously shocking and, and, and it had that kind of sensationalist quality to it. But then the coverage dies out uh, or it shifts to, to other parts of the world or other subjects and things like that. Another point that you mentioned, too, is this idea of intergenerational violence and trauma. I mean, not only are these people uh, in Myanmar, um, all of these, you know, these people from various ethnicities and religions and, and backgrounds and classes and professions and so on experiencing this violence, but this violence is, this is something... I think th- this kind of violence is being passed down intergenerationally intergener- uh, throughout Myanmar uh, and throughout uh, Burmese society, uh, and and really through throughout so much of um, the country and its people. Uh, and really, that's something that I, I sort of wonder about uh, the, the the effects of that. And I think that's also one of the reasons why we we had. Uh, these contributions from earlier periods, 2020 to 2010, and then from 2010 to 1988, to to underscore the extent to which this is a sort of intergenerational problem, uh, and that it has obviously impacted previous generations, it's impacting the current generation, and this kind of violence is going to continue to impact Myanmar in the future, even if that violence ceases in the immediate future, which sadly doesn't seem like uh, it will that this is something very much sort of interwoven into um, Myanmar society uh, and, and its history, sort of interwoven into the fabric of, of, of I suppose, Myanmar stories. Uh, and, and I really wonder about the, the consequences and the impacts of that kind of intergenerational trauma and violence. Mm, certainly, and this is something that we've seen with Generation Z is trying so hard to to make a final resistance of this and to to make a new shift and a new way forward for Myanmar society. But it's it's certainly no easy way. I, I'm also reflecting on you, you said now that you you see a um, uh, when you're looking at the cyclical nature of the way that 
that news gets reported, and that's that's in contrast to these big headlines. There's another contrast that came to my my mind when hearing that, and it's um, it, rather than looking at at something one time or c- cyclical, something that came to mind when I was reading your anthology was the contrast between something being temporary and permanent, and the the example of a big headline when it comes out of of something some great loss of life like what happened in Bago or in Lingtai last year uh, this is this is almost in a the, these big headlines are temporary in their own way they're impermanent because they're they're just passing they arise and they pass away another Buddhist concept here and then we move on to the next thing but what came about in your book was this sense of permanence this sense of a permanent loss that one that is going to stain one forever for the rest of their life and for their community's life. And when in, in the loss that is described in your pages by, by the, the firsthand accounts of people who are expressing what they've gone through, it's, it's this, the, the loss is so devastating very much because it's written in in very permanent kind of ways as the in a subjective way from the speaker from the writer expressing oneself they are giving life to this sense that something has been irre- irrevocably lost forever and uh that's not true of everything i mean someone obviously there there people can get over some things there can be difficult periods that um that one has to pass through and 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 then eventually find a new way forward but there are other you know obviously a loss of life is is as permanent as it gets and that's not just the end of that person's life it's also everyone that that person was connected with it's also a something that is is never coming back it's a relationship or a, a force in the world that is gone forever and so um, it's another interesting thing to contrast this. We have the, the cyclical nature, as you talked about, things that keep coming back and that keep having to be dealt with and aren't just these these big headlines. But then there's also this heavy sense of permanence that I think the headlines don't give justice to, that, that some terrible incident or atrocity that happens, yes, that's terrible for us to have to learn about and know uh, from a distant corner of the world and, and having learned about it and seen and this, this really bad incident that happened. But uh, beyond that reporting, the stories that are expressed in this anthology go into this sense of this permanent sense of loss that one has to somehow, with this burden, find a way forevermore to get through uh, having this, this, this terrible, terrible thing that they're, um, that they're having to hold on to and having to find some way to let go of. And I think that's another kind of universality in reading this that, that one is struck with. And I think that's also why it impacted me so much, even, even through all the, the, the familiarity I have uh, following this, living this out for the past year and a half. It was um, just this this burden, this overwhelming sense of of finality of loss that that really comes through strongly by the some of the selections that you choose. Yeah, absolutely, uh, and and you know the extent to which this loss is inscribed into into a person's life. Um, yeah, and yeah. and that loss becomes part of that person's you know that history or the mm-hmm. community's history or family's history or you know region's history or country's history um and i think one of the ways that i suppose it might be a, a, a sort of a traditionalist view but i think one of the things that we also uh, wanted to do is is we didn't want to put out simply an ebook we we wanted the permanence of a physical book um, mm. that could be you know stored on on shelves and 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 that had that kind of permanency in a library or, or on a bookshelf or something like that. Obviously, books can 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 you know can be um, can be stri- destroyed, lost. They can the papers can um, you know they yellow and wither away and so on and so forth. But um, but nevertheless, there is the kind of permanency to to a physical book that that um, that a digital book or an ebook doesn't have uh, and and we we really wanted to have that that sense of permanency through through the physical object of, of this book itself uh, and to be able to really to to share that book to be able to have that book circulate just as these stories and ideas circulate to be able to have the physical you know the physical book itself circulate 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's funny hearing you say that because when we first got in touch, you sent me an e-copy of the book, which I actually didn't read because there was something in me that wanted, I wanted the physical book. I just felt like I've been living digitally remotely for so long in, in understanding um, and seeing this conflict developed. And, and this is a book that's printed. There's a physical book. So I want to wait until I, I can get a physical copy, sit down and read it. And I, I think it, it did have an impact on me. And, and having the, the, seeing these stories in, in physical print that I had been living through remotely in in uh, the past year, and and seeing this sense of um, of, of reality and of um, uh, verification, uh, validifying that that this really did happen, somehow holding that in my hand gave a different experience than than the online digital version. And so I think that combined with the permanent loss and burden as expressed in these stories, which you rightly also indicate, this is a sense of their identity going forward. This one terrible moment that happened and Burmese people in this past year and a half, so many uh, people in the country have had so many terrible moments, random moments of violence, a, a bullet just passing through the home of, a, uh, of, of someone, of, of a child just sitting there doing nothing that this permanent sense of loss is uh, is is captured and, and shared in, in this anthology. So yes, that really comes through. Yeah, and and for all of the uh, you know for all of the suffering, for all of the the for all of the the loss, for all of the trauma, for all of the death, for all of the torture and things like that, um, there there nevertheless you know there there is a spirit of optimism. I mean, the title itself, "Picking Off Issues," mm-hmm. will not stop the spring, um, despite all of these things. Um, you know, there 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 is this there there are these paths forward. Um, people continue to resist. People continue to fight. People continue to write. Um, and and there is this kind of indomitable spring that that just doesn't seem to be able to be um, suppressed or repressed. Mm, yeah, yeah. Let's let's hope so. Um, before I let you go, just you you looking at the the book itself. Of course, the title again, once again is "Picking Off New Shoots Will Not Stop the Spring." You also have a cover art on the book. Can you explain the meaning of that? Yeah, the uh, the uh, the image itself is by um, by an artist who uh, prefers to remain anonymous, and the the image is quite striking. It's in the shape of of Myanmar. Um, so for those of mm-hmm. for those of readers or listeners who are unfamiliar with with Myanmar, um, you know its history, culture, or simply unfamiliar with its shape on a map, uh, its geography. Uh, it's physical shape. Um, it's shaped uh, in the in the shape of of, of Myanmar itself, uh, and it it has this blood spattering. Um, it has uh, the, the the sort of you know this visceral red and orange, um, obviously to to uh, allude to the, the kind of violence that's continues to happen there. But also, it has the symbolism uh, of uh, resistance. These flip flops um, that. Uh, seem to recur throughout these various um, resistance mm-hmm. movements within uh, Myanmar's history, uh, and so we have some work that alludes to to this um, to this uh, to this metaphor, really, but also again to these physical objects, to these to these flip flops. And in one of the works, it refers to uh, the flip flops that were left behind um, because the military had opened fire. Uh, on on a crowd, and they the crowd obviously had to disperse, running for their lives, and often uh, these flip flops were left behind um, as people were seeking shelter um, from from the the Yonto's bullets. Hmm. Right, that's a really striking image. Uh, and yeah, I encourage all listeners to find a copy of this book. It's really quite extraordinary. And I thank you, Brian, for taking the time to join and explain about the process of creating this over the course of the past year. Thanks very much. I appreciate it. We'd like to take this time to thank our generous supporters who have already given. 
We simply cannot continue to provide you with this content and information without the wonderful support of generous listeners, donors, and friends like you. Each episode helps in providing access to one more voice, one more perspective, one more insight. Every donation of any size is greatly appreciated and it helps us to continue this mission. We greatly appreciate your generosity, which allows us to maintain this platform and everything else we do. If you would like to join in our mission to support those in Myanmar who are being impacted by the military coup, we welcome your contribution in any form, currency, or transfer method. Your donation will go to support a wide range of humanitarian missions, aiding those local communities who need it most. Donations are directed to such causes as the Civil Disobedience Movement, CDM, Families of Deceased Victims, Internally Displaced Person, IDP Camps, Food for Impoverished Communities, Military Defection Campaigns, Undercover Journalists, Monasteries and Nunneries, Education Initiatives, the Purchasing of Protective Equipment and Medical Supplies, COVID Relief, and much more. We also make sure that our donation fund supports a diverse range of religious and ethnic groups across the country. We invite you to visit our website to learn more about past projects as well as upcoming needs. You can give a general donation or earmark your contribution for a specific activity or project you would like to support, perhaps even something you heard about in this very episode. All of this humanitarian aid work is carried out by our nonprofit mission, Better Burma. Any donation you give on our Insight Myanmar website is directed towards this fund. Alternatively, you can also visit the Better Burma website, betterburma.org. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-B-U-R-M-A.org and donate directly there. In either case, your donation goes to the same cause and both websites accept credit cards. You can also give via PayPal by going to paypal.me slash betterburma. Additionally, we take donations through Patreon, Venmo, GoFundMe, and Cash App. Simply search Better Burma on each platform and you'll find our account. You can also visit either the Insight Myanmar or Better Burma websites for specific links to those respective accounts or email us at info at betterburma.org. If you'd like to give in another way, please contact us. Thank you so much for your kind consideration and support. ဆောင်းလက်ဖွဲ့တစ်ခုလိုရေအိမ်ရဲဝင်တော့မဆိုရင်တော့စိတ်တက်ကိုညင်းတဲ့အမြတ်တနေရာမှာတင်ထားပြ
The spirit outshines the variegate bomb blasts. The spirit body is the spirit. The spirit breath is the spirit. The spirit flag is the spirit. Yeah.